You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Michaela Reagan. Uh, she's a faculty scientist at um, MMC, which is the main medical center. So uh, thanks for coming, Michaela. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? Good, good. So tell me about uh, your research. What are you working on? So I have a lab here in Maine Medical Center in the Research Institute, and we focus on cancer in the bone marrow. One of the cancers we focus mm. on is called multiple myeloma. And in the world of, you know, no cancer is good, but uh, in the world of cancers, how bad is multiple myeloma? So uh, right now it's not curable. So um, in that regard, it's pretty bad. But our therapies are becoming um, more and more effective and working for more people. So people are living longer. You can live up to seven years or even longer now um, as an average mm. time. If, if you have treatment without treatment, it's really only a seven-month uh, average survival. Um, oh, wow. It makes up um, about one percent of of cancers. So okay, so it's relatively rare. Um, yeah. What happens? Uh, what what type of cells are affected, and what what does the cancer do that causes uh, you know medical problems and then death? Yeah. So this kind of cancer is actually a blood cancer, but it acts like a solid tumor. Um, so in the cancer world, there's often called liquid tumors and solid tumors. Um, liquid being blood cancers, usually like le leukemia. But myeloma, although it is a blood cell that becomes mutated and grows out of control, it actually grows pretty specifically in the bone marrow, at least at the beginning, and grows more as a solid um, mass or in a solid location in the marrow. Um, and then what it starts to do is hijack the bone marrow niche, as we call it, or the bone marrow microenvironment, and it starts to interact with these cells and activate the cells that break down bone so that the bone is eroded and degraded wherever it grows throughout the whole body, basically. Um, and this leads to big holes in the bone, which are very painful for patients oh, and can increase the risk for fracture and other problems. Right. Um, I, I have a question. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's weird. You know, I, I, I've been told, and I'm sure a lot of people have been told, that your blood is what? It's created in the bone marrow, right? The cells that comprise your blood? Yes, that's right, for the most part. Or in the liver. You can have hematopoiesis in the liver. Um, so, so, so that is where yeah, it originally Yeah. Okay. Well, particularly with bone, I mean, it's a silly question, but how does the how do the cells get out of the bone once they're created and into the yeah. blood system? 
yeah, bone is such an interesting organ. I think that so many people think of it as a static um, type of tissue, but it actually has blood vessels. <clears throat> Sorry, it, it signals to all other organs and tissues throughout the whole body. And so it's highly innervated, um, meaning it has lots of nerves, and it has these blood vessels so that inside the bone marrow, um, there's a lot of blood vessels and the tumor cells or the other non-tumor cells can grow there and then enter into the bloodstream right through the bone marrow and then circulate through your whole body. Do they migrate through the marrow itself till they reach a vessel and then they yeah. diffuse into the vessel and off they go? That's exactly what they do. So they cross the endothelial barrier, which are the cells that make up the blood vessel, um, and they use different types of proteins to do that. So one of the big uh, research areas in our field is understanding how tumor cells move through the blood vessel. How do they get from the bone marrow into the blood vessel and then spread to a new location? And then in this new location, they have to slow down in a capillary um, in the skin or some other part of the bone, and then they have to leave the blood vessel. So a lot of what our research is looking at is homing into different types of blood capillaries uh, throughout the body and what are the proteins that are needed by the cells to allow them to slow down and specifically pick one spot. Uh, which I think is really interesting about bone is that many tumors migrate into the bone based on the proteins of the blood vessel cells in the bone. Huh. So, yes, it's, it's very um, interesting. So there's a signaling that seems to happen that tells the um, the cancer cells, all right, get off here, here's your exit, and leave the, uh, <laughs> yep. the capillary at a certain point. Yes, exactly. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So there's kind of a gradient, we call it a chemokine gradient, um, that tells the cell to migrate in a certain direction. So not only does it have to stop and slow down, it has to feel the right chemical signals in sort of a gradient. So on one side of the cell, there's this chemical signal, and on the other side, there's not, so it knows which direction to move. And this is how cells through our whole body move with these gradients. And this is how we develop our bones and our, our whole body. But tumor cells can use this to specifically find locations that they know are going to be advantageous for their growth. So that's how they... There's also other biochemical factors. There's hypoxia um, for certain proteins. So there's a lot of ways that the tumor cell figures out where it should send itself. Well, I mean, it, I wonder if it's like an ant colony where you have the initial tumor cell or the initial scouts that go out and, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, randomly diffuse. And then one, <laughs> they say, oh, this is a good spot. Then they send out their own signals to tell the rest of their friends, come and let's, you know, yep. let's start a new colony here. Exactly. So that is a beautiful analogy. Um, there's something called the pre-metastatic niche, which is this, that exact concept where tumor cells first have to get there um, initially, and then they kind of reprogram whatever microenvironment they're in to make it even more hospitable to more tumor cells. And then they send signals back um, or somehow communicate that this is a good place to be and huh. more tumor cells are able to come. So understanding that pre-metastatic spot can actually tell you where a tumor might end up growing. Um, so there's a lot of interest in that as well. Do, does, does multiple myeloma tend to go into the same kinds of tissues? Like how often does it metastasize to the same spots or is it is it more random? Um, so it, at the beginning, it goes to multiple different spots in the bone. And that's why it's called um, multiple myeloma. So a myeloma cell is just a tumor cell. And when it becomes not just a precursor disease, which is called MGUS, but it becomes multiple myeloma, that means there's multiple spots in the body. And you can see them um, histologically or with scans. And you can see multiple different spots in the body. But it's almost always in the bone. But eventually, the tumor cell is no longer reliant on the bone and the bone marrow, and they start to grow in the blood. And this is more like the very end stage where they're no longer requiring the bone marrow cells and uh, environment, and now they can 
grow just in the blood and they take over. Um, when they when they grow in the blood, I would think that they would very quickly exceed the uh, the ability to go into a, a capillary because they would get big quick, right? Once you have a few cells together. Yep. So they can clump together. Um, and they are circulating through your blood. That's for the most part how they migrate even when they're growing the bone, but they can't really survive and grow and proliferate well in the blood when they're in the earlier stages. But by the end, um, they able they're able to to do that throughout the whole blood, the bloodstream. Hmm. Um, so what are what are the treatments you're working on, and how do you think that they're having an effect? Um, so my lab has a lot of uh, really interesting collaborations. We're trying to target the bone and bone cells as well as the tumor cell, uh, as well as the blood vessel cell. Um, so one of the things we don't know in the bone marrow, we understand osteoblasts, which are bone building cells, and osteoclasts, which are bone resorbing cells, but we don't know that much yet about bone marrow fat cells. And as we age, our bone marrow gets packed with bone marrow fat. Um, also in obesity or ironically in anorexia and starvation, our bone marrow gets packed with adipocytes, which are fat cells. So our lab has been trying to understand the connection between cancer and bone marrow fat, um, specifically in myeloma, um, because we know that as you age, your risk of myeloma increases, and also there's an increase for myeloma in obesity. So there's a lot of correlations that indicate that bone marrow fat may actually contribute to the tumor cells. So therapeutically, we're trying to understand how bone marrow fat cells affect tumor cells and then figure out what we can do to kind of stop that interaction. Um, that's one of the projects so we're working on. So you said that adipocytes end up in the bone marrow? Yes. It's a fat depot that we have that we rarely think about. Oh. Everybody is familiar with their subcutaneous fat and their visceral fat around their stomach and their organs. Um, but you actually have a lot of fat stored deep within your bone marrow. Because your bone marrow has either it's either red bone marrow or yellow, which means it's either like this hematopoietic healthy bone marrow that's producing new bone cells, or it's this fatty bone marrow that's kind of storing energy, and we're still figuring out what those adipocytes are doing there. Huh. But we know that they signal, we know that they respond, they can change based on exercise, they can change based on diet, um, and they seem oh. to be producing factors that signal throughout the whole body as well. Well, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. from what I've from what I've learned, adipocytes, uh, they're like, I mean, fat is essentially becomes like an organ or a tissue, and it secretes hormones and mm -hmm. you know inflammatory right. stuff. And so maybe what's happening is it's as it accumulates in the marrow, it, it disrupts that environment and that predisposes the environment towards you know having other abnormalities because yep, now there's something exactly. in there that. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that's the question. Um, it's interesting because they've actually made a mouse model where you can uh, knock out fat cells, all the fat cells in your bone marrow, and that seems to be detrimental as well. So it looks like we do need some adipocytes. Um, they produce factors that help the blood vessels to grow in the bone marrow. So if you don't have those, um, if some damage occurs in your bone marrow or you get irradiated, then you're not able to actually regrow your healthy marrow because the adipocytes are required to produce factors to re recruit the blood vessels. Um, but like oh. you're saying, on the other hand, we might have too many fat cells, especially during aging or other diseases, um, these might make it harder for your red bone marrow to function, or they might just interact with tumor cells or other cells and induce disease like osteoporosis potentially, um, or contribute to other cancers. Does you think that uh, perhaps osteoporosis, I don't know, makes the uh, that protected inner environment more permissive and more things can come in and out, causing problems? Um, in terms of like the cancer osteoporosis connection. Yeah, is there out, one? Like, I mean, does it, yeah, does osteoporosis uh, make the bone more porous, or does it make holes, yeah. or does it just weaken it? Or 
it does. It does pretty much all of the above. Um, it can make it weaker bone, and typically bone mass and bone density are all decreasing. Um, and it's a hugely underdiagnosed and undertreated problem, especially in the U.S., and it leads to, you know, some of the most common um, visits to the ER and especially for elderly people, um, why they transition into hospice and other uh, places like that are due to fracture and osteoporosis. Mm. So, yeah, I think that understanding bone health uh, is very is very important. And in the context of cancer, it's we typically don't call it osteoporosis, but it's cancer-induced bone disease. But there are a lot of parallels mm. between osteoporosis and cancer. And, you know, mm. adiposites might contribute to this. So we're trying to investigate the connection between bone and fat. So we've seen now that there's, when you have more bone, often you'll have less bone marrow fat, not always. And when you have less bone, often these patients have more bone marrow fat. And it could be that the progenitor cell, which is able to grow into both a bone cell or a fat cell, is choosing one pathway over the other. And if we can skew the the differentiation pathway that it's taking, we might be able to improve bone and decrease bone marrow fat, uh, and therefore increase the strength of your bone and resistance to fracture. Hmm. So that's a big question in the does bone it, field. Does there seem to be a tipping point, uh, a percentage <clears throat> by volume of adipocytes that, you know, change the equation now to where they call the shots and they have the majority and they, they you know, transform that environment yeah. and push out the, the marrow? Um, that is a great question. I don't think that anybody has specifically found that. Um, but what people are looking at right now are the sort of signaling pathways that govern why and how a stem cell depicts which differentiation pathway it wants to choose. Um, one of the molecules is called sclerostin, and that induces it's basically an inhibitor of Wnt signaling, which is required for bone to develop. Um, so that's mm-hmm. an important pathway that people are now targeting. So there's a few drugs that I'm trying to use for myeloma patients, but people are, right now it's, um, I think it just was FDA approved for osteoporosis patients, and it basically shifts and induces more bone by getting stem cells to um, basically go down the osteogenic pathway by inducing wind mm. signaling. So these are the kind of things that we're hopeful will translate from the osteoporosis world into the cancer-induced bone disease world, because many of these therapies increase bone. They're great to reduce fracture risk, and if we could use those for our patients, that would be great as well. We just want to make sure that they're not increasing the tumor growth. The osteoporosis patients don't have any tumor. That's fine, but um, so mm. that's a lot of the preclinical work that I do. I, I do a lot of mouse models and try and use these bone drugs and see if we can use them successfully or in combination therapies uh, in our mice. Yeah, I wonder if it's, if it's and I'm just riffing here, I'm, you know, <laughs> what do I know? But, uh, you know, you talked about uh, gradients of, uh, I forget what you call them, but chemical gradients that cells yep. follow. Yeah, the chemokine gradients. Yep. Chemokine. So, so I would guess that, you know, if you have adipocytes and you have, you know, uh, other cells, the normal cells that are there, both are putting out um, various chemicals and these are creating gradients or creating concentration amounts and that would signal to any new cell there what to do so one (laughs) voice is louder than the other essentially maybe that would divert it absolutely yep so one of the molecules that adipocytes produce is uh, interleukin-6 and we know that this which is called il-6 is able to stimulate tumor cells and can cause drug resistance so uh, we're trying to figure out what else these adipocytes produce that can cause gradients or signal to the cells to change how they grow or how they uh, act in response to different drugs. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to find some of those and then come up with treatments, either inhibitors or antibodies that block these to actually kind of decrease the effect of these cells. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So uh, another question is how does the cancer know, okay, 
it's time to metastasize or is it trying to do that all the time or is it only doing that in response to like you know a, a bad microenvironment you know local mm -hmm. hypoxia or you know lack yeah. of nutrients or lack of something else yeah that's a great question in the cancer field in general um and it seems to definitely vary from tumor type to tumor type um and it really depends on the patient and the type of mutation that they have. Um, sometimes you can have a tumor that will grow in situ or just kind of remain in place for a long time and grow without breaking through what we call the basement membrane or the barrier around it into the other healthy tissue. Um, and those tumors can be resected. They come out easily with surgery, um, and they haven't shed any of their uh, external cells into the circulation. And then there's other types of tumors that are just much more aggressive, based on their genetics or epigenetic changes, um, where they're located, hypoxia, vascular, vascularization, that they don't have to be very big and they already start to send off tumor cells um, to dif distant parts of the body. So if we could understand that better, I think that that would be great as well. We could figure out, you know, do we have more time with this patient or less time or um, how do we need to act or should we, should we worry about metastases already or are we probably pretty safe? Um, often you, you can kind of... Mm check the tumor when you cut it out and see if it has, we call it the margins. You look around the outside of the tumor and you try and see if there's already kind of invasive cells that look like they're breaking through into the surrounding tissue. Or if it looks like a nice solid little ball, you're probably okay. But well, I know that um, you know, tumors are often sequenced to see what genetic changes there are, but can you see epigenetic changes in a tumor or in any cell for that matter? Do you look at that? Do you consider that? Yeah, so right now, I think a lot of the big hospitals like Dana-Farber is doing sequencing, like you said, to look for mutations. Um, but there are ways, a number of different ways to do epigenetic profiling, um, sequencing. There's ChIP-seq, which is this chromo, uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation sequencing, where you can, um, you can also look for like methylation sequence on mm. either DNA or RNA. So there's a lot of different epigenetic changes that, that can occur, um, acetylation. And you can look for these in different ways. It's not that common to do right now for patients, but I think that we're going to learn more and more that it's not just based on what type of mutation the patient has, but the type of epigenetic um, signature that basically helps us profile these different types of tumors. Yeah, because I think that would be a big piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it, I know like a lot of people think, oh, it's just a genetic mutation is what causes it. But I mean, why couldn't it be, <clears throat> you know, environmental pressures that cause epigenetic changes and that leads yeah. you know to to uh cancer you know, yep. happening. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, and it gets very complicated because it's often almost always it's more than one mutation. So you usually need some sort of driver mutation and some other second hit like an oncogene has to be activated and a tumor suppressor has to be suppressed so that the cancer cell is able to grow out of control. Um and these things hmm. are all, you know, some of them might not have an effect on a certain tumor cell, but based on the epigenetic profile of the cell, it might be actually much more aggressive. So it's not just the mutations that the tumor cells have. And have you characterized like what the you know the the original tumor versus the metastases look like? Like how different are they genetically, yeah. epigenetically? You know, I would guess because of their unique microenvironments and the cells around them, they would get different signaling and they would adapt and morph in a different way. Yeah. That is a really hot question in the fields. Um, some people have reported a lot of the same mutations are found in a distant metastasis site compared to the original primary tumor. Um, other people look at the circulating tumor cells um, or the disseminated tumor cells. Um, but people see di different 
kind of mixed results. Some people, uh, some labs have seen that the mutations are completely different and that the clone that actually came from the primary tumor has now completely different mutations from the primary tumor. Um, I think more often there's some mutations are in common, but it will kind of be selected, like you said, based on the environment that it winds up in. So maybe at first there was an advantage to having a certain mutation in a RAS or RAS protein, but in their second location, um, the tumor that's able to kind of survive, it's based on like Darwinian survival, um, just the survival of the fittest, whichever clone can arrive at that location and then fits best into that microenvironment based on the cells that are there will survive. And so sometimes that means different hmm. mutations will get selected for in this secondary site. So myeloma you know, is very tricky like that. You know, when, well. when people talk about evolution, they always say, oh, it happens over millions of years and it's random <laughs> mutations and blah, blah. But this is not that. This looks right. like extremely fast maybe. mutation yep. multiple times. And do you think that it, do you think that epigenetic changes have a feedback mechanism where they then change the underlying genome? Yes, um, and that's been shown. So that's what uh, they're basically able to do. So depending on the way that they're epigenetically modified, that can change. It might not change the basal mutation of a cell, but it changes what that cell, what kind of proteins that cell is making, what kind of mRNA, because it can activate or bind a promoter um, and turn on certain genes that allow the tumor to grow faster. So no, I understand that the environment definitely causes epigenetic changes and that changes yeah. gene expression. But you said that in looking at these cancer cells, they have multiple mutations. And it sounds like maybe you've been able to establish a path, what happens first and then next and next and next. But why would they have even one mutation should be rare if you think about, you know, normal evolution and Darwinian evolution. But these are having multiple ones on a very tiny time scale. So I just wonder yeah. if there's like a feedback so, mechanism. It's weird. You know? Yeah. Um, so I've heard before the quote that we all have mutated cells within us every day. And actually, it's just the immune system that comes through and notices that some cell is mutated and has proteins that it shouldn't have. Um, and that they will clear out those mutated cells. Or often the mutation most commonly leads to cell death. Um, so it's actually pretty common as our cells are replicating that they're getting translocations or deletions or insertions in the chromosome or their the bases are not matching up perfectly so it's pretty common um but you know every once in a while those cells will actually be able to survive and turn into tumor cells so i think it's more common than than we realize that these that these well, will develop happening once i guess i guess maybe the one mutation is then causes yes. the cascade <laughs> Exactly. So that's one of the heavily. marks of cancer is that they're now, um, these tumor cells are much more genetically unstable. So they accumulate mutations much faster so that they have a more diver diverse pool of mutated cells that can then go on and get selected for. So um, hmm. it's true. They're, they're more likely to get more mutations than a normal healthy cell um, for hmm. a few different reasons. Well, yeah. sorry to go down that rabbit hole for a little bit, but uh, it just... Cancer is like so complicated and so. It is. It, it just, yeah. So, yeah. Where do you see the breakthroughs coming? Like within your research, there's a lot of things you can look at. Where do you see the breakthroughs coming? Where do you, you know, get the sense that you're making good progress? Um, I actually see a lot of different areas. Some um, is more translational research based, so trying to take the drugs and the therapies that we already have and figuring out which patients would benefit from these. I think is a really interesting and pretty cost-effective way of developing new drugs. Um, and then um, 
I don't know. The field is going in a lot of different directions. Definitely immunotherapy is very interesting, um, and it looks like it's becoming more and more successful. So basically just trying to activate the immune system to kill the tumor cell, because um, right now tumor cells often can disguise themselves and hide from the immune cells. And if you can right. activate, you know, uh, kind of overcome this, then you can get your own immune system to find these tumor cells and clear them out. And I think that that's a really hot area right now. Um, we're working a little bit in that area. Um, but in, in terms of myeloma, I think that bone marrow adipocytes have a lot of promise, and especially because they haven't been investigated at all. But they're packing up, sometimes they make up to 75% of the cells in the bone marrow. And they interact very closely with these tumor cells, and we don't really understand what they're doing at all. When when someone has a, <clears throat> a very high level of uh, adipocytes in the marrow, do they tend to be anemic? Do they tend to just literally have a lot less, uh, you know, blood cons constituents produced? Um, I I'm not sure if that's exactly been studied, um, because often even a little bit of red marrow can make enough blood for your whole body, so people can like fracture their femur and get a whole rod put into their bone marrow and still have enough bone marrow that generates enough blood. Um, so I'm not sure if it actually inhibits the mm. generation of, of blood, but that's a really good question. Okay. And then have, have you been able to see the uh, the very start of cancer, uh, you know, in a Petri dish or in a mouse model? You know, the reason why I ask is yeah. that, you know, I once saw a video that said, you know, by the time that uh, we're able to, to detect most cancers, there's hundreds of thousands of cells that will comprise the tumor. Without at least tens of thousands, so that's a long way away from one, you know, starting with one cell. So I wonder if you've ever seen the inception of this cancer. That's interesting. Um, I don't think I have because, for the most part, we work with cells that are already mutated. So we start with um, mm. tumor cells that have been obtained from patients, and we put these into mice or into the cell dish, and then kind of do experiments from that. Um, if you do, there's some mouse models for myeloma. You have to wait, I think, two plus years for this to naturally develop in these mouse models. Um, there are some ways to make transgenic mice that get, get cancer faster, um, that's for sure. And you can also, in a Petri dish, induce mutations that can change one cell from a normal cell into a tumor cell. I don't do that very much. Um, often what I'm looking at is once you have a tumor cell, rather than the initiation and the, the first mutation, if you have a tumor cell, and it's in the bloodstream, how can you determine where it's going to go, and how can you make it more sensitive to the drugs that we have? So a lot of what we do is combination mm. therapies. We, because all these patients are already on a lot of myeloma therapies, um, so we're just trying to figure out when the drug is, when the tumor cell is resistant to these drugs, what can we do to make him more, to make the cell more sensitive? Um, so we try and right. do different combination therapies to figure mm -hmm. out why is he resistant and what can we do to make him more sensitive. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess last question in this vein is, so you've caused cancer in mice by implanting tumor cells into them in order exactly. to study this? Yep. We inject it right into their bloodstream and they circulate. And because we've selected for the cells that home into the bone marrow, um, after a few days, they start to just lodge into the bone marrow and they're nowhere else in the mouse except for the bone marrow. And they start to grow just like in a patient. How many cells do you put in? Have you ever tried just one or can you even do that? <laughs> it's a funny thing. It seems like there's a limit um, a bottom limit to that. So we inject about 5 million tumor cells into a mouse. Um, you can go down to like 2 million, but if you inject less than that, um, they won't engraft. So there's some sort of uh, minimum that is kind of required for, we, we don't completely understand, but is required for enough cells to get there. It may be that one cell did arrive in the bone marrow and that one cell could survive. 
a lot of them die on the way. They get stuck in the lung. Um, so you really kind of bottleneck it when you do the injections. But even if that one cell did survive, you probably wouldn't see it um, grow. Uh, it would take a little bit longer for, for that cell to grow. Or it may not have. Yeah. Like, you know, you often have failed attempts when you've injected too few cells into a mouse. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Luckily, we've learned right, okay. 5 million is pretty good. We inject that. Initially, you don't. You can see first the tumor cells go everywhere in the whole body. You can use bioluminescence to see these tumor cells. They basically glow in the mouse. It's pretty amazing. Um, and then by a few days, the tumor cells are almost all dead, but a few of them have lodged into the bone marrow, and then over time, they start to grow in the bone marrow. And then, you know, after four or five weeks, the mouse is covered with glowing cells. Basically, his bone marrow is packed, um, and then we yeah. sacrifice them. Huh. Yep. So uh, what what insights have you gotten about, you know, how metastatic sites are chosen? You said that's like a big focus of your study, and you want to make it, you know, less likely that it happens. So what insights uh, have you gotten about that process? Like, how do they choose site selection? Yeah. Um, one of the interesting studies that um, is under review right now that we're sending back to Hematologica is about um, the proteins on the cells that help them home into the bone marrow. And it looks like it depends not just on the proteins, but actually on the sugars on the proteins. So um, there's a certain sugar called sialic acid. And if that is on the right proteins on the tumor cell, it will enable the cell to be able to interact with the blood vessel. But if you knock that down um, or if you mm. cleave it or if you don't allow it to put that sugar on its proteins, those tumor cells will not home into the bone marrow um, and they'll be much more sensitive to drugs and they won't engraft and they won't grow in the same way. So um, that's sure. there's a few ways to target these sugars on these proteins. Um, there's now drugs in development for that. And I think that that's a pretty interesting area that um, we're just learning about now. So glycoproteins, basically. I would guess the the more different a tumor cell is to the native you know tissue it came from, the easier it would be to attack it and treat it. The more similar, the more difficult, because then anything you do would attack the underlying tissue and the the healthy tissue, the healthy organ. You know? Yeah, yeah, and finding those differences is what's often very difficult because they are your own cell. If it was a donor tumor cell, that wouldn't be so hard but they're your own cell right. just with a few slight mutations that allow it to kind of fit in and make itself hidden to, to the immune system. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, sorry, I just have tons of questions about this, but just find it like very interesting. And you know. That's great. I'm glad. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Thank God. There's a lot to do here. So, so what do you see as a, you know, there's a few, a few closing questions because I've, you know, I've questioned you to death here. Um, <laughs> what do you think is going to be coming from your research in the next, you know, a few years in the near term, what do you think is possible? And then longer term, what are some of the more ambitious goals that you have? Um, so in the near term, what I hope to do is uh, finish up understanding, hopefully, how bone marrow adipocytes are affecting myeloma cells and also how myeloma cells are affecting the bone marrow adipocytes. So those are a few projects that the people in my lab have been working on and are trying to, to look at right now. Um, and we're trying to mm. specifically look at the fatty acids that come from the adipocytes basically the fats that are stored in the fat cells, if any of those can come out and signal to the tumor cell. Um, so if so, this might have implications for new therapies, no, new ways of targeting the tumor cells. Um, so hopefully we'll be working with some companies and trying to develop some new therapies, therapeutics and um, ways to target the tumor cells based on this, on this research. And okay. in the long term, I mean, I would love to be able to see myeloma patients live for 20 years with myeloma and just figure out the right combination of therapies and drugs to 
reduce their bone loss and combat the tumor so that they have a much higher quality of life um, and a much longer life than they currently do. Well, very good. Well, Michaela, it's been really great. Um, what, what's the best way for people to get more information? And if they want to contact you and find out more, you know, how should they contact the lab or you? What's the best um, way? That's, um, they can co- go to the MMCRI website and then just look for um, my webpage. Um, the I'm also on ResearchGate. I'm on LinkedIn, um, but it's basically mmcri.org. That's Maine Medical Center Research Institute.org, so MMCRI. And then under faculty, look for Dr. Reagan, and you'll be able to find me there. And email me or come if you're in Maine and you're interested. You're welcome to come and see the lab and meet my staff and my students. Okay. And then uh, just so people know that are listening, Maine is the state, M-A-I-N-E, not Maine is like the main yeah. thing in case uh, they exactly. can hear the difference. So. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Michaela, thanks. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.